My child screaming in the back is a reminder that if you are interested in our nursery program, <laughs> now's a good time to go. Not a requirement, but uh, it's an option for you if you want a break. Um, I'm going to use this today. I have terrible mic discipline, but we also have a headset that's going out on us, so I get to hold a mic today and see what happens. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screen behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room. Uh, if you want uh, one of those, just prefer that route. I, I tend to be a guy who wants to hold it in my hands instead of see it on a screen somewhere. Uh, and so if that's more comfortable for you, please just grab that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, we invite you to take that one. Um, we value God's word here. We believe it has the ability to convict us of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe it's the main thing that God gives us, the primary thing we would say, uh, that God gives us to teach us about self and all those kinds of things. Uh, and so uh, God uses it in an effectual way to, to move and to shift and to draw people to himself and make himself known. And, and, and so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, I would call it a win for you to take it home and start reading it. So steal that one. Take that one, borrow that one, whatever you want to do, just read it, all right? So, Ephesians chapter 3, uh, we're in the middle of a series right now uh, that we're calling To the Saints. It's over the book of Ephesians, all right? And so we got some artwork for it. Garrett did a great job with that. Uh, we're about a third of the way into the series right now. Um, and so, for the uninitiated, uh, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesus... Uh, Back in the first century was a big deal, uh, but it's not anymore. It's nothing but ruins today. It was a port city on the western coast of Turkey. Uh, and, uh, but back in its heyday in the first century, it was a, it was a massive influence on the world. Right? Uh, it was a major hub for culture and economics and religious things. The Temple of Artemis was there, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And so there's this massive influence that Ephesus plays over the ancient world and the Mediterranean and going up into Asia and all of that kind of thing. And the Ephesian church, had the responsibility of preaching the gospel in the shadow of that magnificent temple and that steamroller of a culture. Quite a, quite a big task, right? It can feel daunting. They had the, the responsibility to preach a countercultural gospel in a city that was very proud that it didn't need this and didn't need that, didn't need whatever. It was okay. Ephesus was going to be all right. Now, the ruins that are there today probably tell you that that was a lot of hot air, right? But it's also not anything different than what we experience. See, the thing about the Ephesian culture and the church in the Ephesian culture is that the church at Ephesus really was kind of blessed in knowing where they stood, right? They, they preached a countercultural gospel and everybody knew where they stood. It's a lot more difficult to preach a gospel in a, in a culture that has the appearance or has glimpses of Christ-likeness, glimpses of God's kingdom, but not actually be God's kingdom. That's the kind of thing that sends a lot of people to hell, right? And so really, as, as daunting as the task is for the Ephesian church to preach the gospel in that culture, maybe it's also kind of refreshing, right? Yeah, and so uh, what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks is just this reality of what the gospel is in that countercultural way. And last week we looked at uh, 
the, the last part of Ephesians chapter 2, and we, we learn that one of the countercultural pieces of the gospel is that Jesus reconciles us to himself as he reconciles us to each other, right? That's what we said. That, that the, Jesus' work on the cross is not simply uh, a reconciliation between us and God, although it is that and it is that primarily, but it's also a reconciliation between each other. If we're, we're, if we're united to him, we're also united to each other as we unite to him right? That Jesus is the great wall destroyer is the way we said it. That he tears down the dividing wall of hostility and he makes one new man where there once were two. Yeah. And so last week we looked at the, the counter-cultural message that Jesus is the great reconciler. So y'all ready to jump into chapter 3? Alright, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, time out, We go through this all the time, all right? So, if Paul is taking the next logical step in his explanation of what the gospel is and does in and around the Ephesian church, we need to know the context, right? It says, for this reason. So what's the reason? Chapter 2, right? So what happens in chapter 2? It starts out in the first part of chapter 2 by explaining the gospel in detail. We are separated from God. We are owed the penalty of our trespass. We are children of nature, are children of wrath by nature is the way Paul says it, right? that we deserve. We're owed the wrath of God because of my specific sin and our corporate sin that all of us deserve the wrath of God but God. He's rich in mercy and he loves with a great love. And even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ, by grace we have been saved is the way verse 4 and 5 say it, right? The gospel starts out in, in Ephesians 2, the first part of Ephesians 2. Paul starts out by explaining the gospel in, in very stark details that we are separated from God, but God bridges that gap. He does what we cannot do and closes the gap between us and God. He reconciles us to himself. He makes those who were dead spiritually, and he makes them spiritually alive. And then Paul rolls on from there and talks about how, uh, how the prize of this gospel, the prize of this gospel is not a heaven to come, but Jesus in that heaven to come. And that, that the that thing that we're aiming at is not uh, streets of gold and walls of jasper or anything else we like to picture when we think of, of heaven or all those kinds of things, but the presence, the full presence, uninterrupted presence of Jesus forever and ever and ever as we sit at his feet and he unfolds what he has done, layer after layer after layer. That the prize of the gospel is Jesus himself. He's not the means to some greater end. That's the way we said it. And then Paul moves from there and he talks about how uh, we have been saved for a purpose. That we are his workmanship, he says. Created for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we said a few weeks ago when we looked at verse 10 was that that God has created us to walk in a specific way, designed us, built us, wired us so that we might do the work of ministry and that to be reconciled to God is to be reconciled to who he's created us to be as well. Then we talked last week about the reality that he reconciles us to each other. And then Paul says, for this reason. It's a big shift, right? That happens every day about this time. We don't know what that is. Paul says, For this reason, 
I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay, so Paul calls himself a prisoner. What's he talking about? Think he's just being cute? No, he's literally a prisoner. All right? So those of you who are, who are new to the series, we've been in the series since July. When we, when we started this stuff in July, we explained in detail then, if you want to go back and listen to it on the podcast, that Paul is in prison when this happens, when he writes this letter. Right? Even though he was a part of starting the church in Ephesus, he was there for a few years, he's eventually run out of town. A riot starts by those who are opposed to the gospel. He's run out of town. He ends up going to Greece. This is all spelled out in Acts 19 and 20, and then uh, the preceding... Or, following chapters in Acts, all right? He, so he goes to Greece, he stays there for a little while, and then he goes down to Jerusalem, and he's immediately arrested in Jerusalem. And then he spends the next four, five, maybe six years, depending on how you count, under arrest. About halfway through this process, they put him on a boat, and they sail him off to Rome, and he's under house arrest in Rome for a few years. And the book of Acts ends in chapter 28 with Paul still under house arrest. Paul writes the letter to the Ephesians, while under house arrest in Rome, right? And so when Paul says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus, he's not trying real hard to be poetic and cute. He's not speaking metaphorically. He's literally a prisoner. But he's not just literally a prisoner. What does he say? He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ on behalf of who? You Gentiles. So we talked last week about the racial and cultural differences between the Jewish and Gentile believers and about how only Jesus can tear down the wall that, and the bridge the, the, that divides them. Here Paul says, a very Jewish Paul says, that he's imprisoned on their behalf. Right? We can look at other places in the scriptures like Philippians where Paul spells out in detail just how Jewish he is. Jewish Paul is a prisoner on their behalf. His imprisonment is not just literal. He's also a spiritual prisoner of sorts, isn't he? He's got a calling on his life that he cannot be let go of. What's he doing? He is adamant, dead set on preaching the gospel to those who don't know it yet on taking the gospel to the Gentile peoples. And nothing, not even imprisonment, not even the threat of death, is going to get in his way, is it? He's a prisoner spiritually for them. He's chained to the responsibility of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. But there's also a weird thing at the end of verse 1 that most of us probably didn't pay attention to, but all the grammar Nazis in the room can't stop staring at What's it called? The little long hyphen thing. It's not a hyphen. Does anybody know what it's called? It's called an M dash. Not a hyphen. Not an N dash. That's different. An M dash. E-M-D-A-S-H. What's an M dash do for those of you who've taken your grammar class? Do we know? Shut it down and go back to school. All right. An M dash basically calls a timeout. It's an insertion mark for a parenthetical statement. Parenthetical as in parentheses. As in, let me insert a thought within this thought. Paul, at the end of verse 1, calls a timeout. He starts raring up to talk about something, and then you get an M-dash. 
So he's going to call a timeout. How long do you think this little rabbit trail goes? Look down at verse 14. What does it say? For this reason. Sound familiar? Paul is going to call a timeout and talk about something else for two paragraphs in a formal letter. Like if you think I'm long-winded, Paul's got me beat. And no one else ought to complain again, right? Right? So Paul calls a timeout. He gets revved up about talking about uh, being a prisoner on behalf of the Gentiles. And he goes, wait, 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 i got to talk about something else. He goes on a two-paragraph rabbit trail. Oh, but hear me, church. It is an amazing rabbit trail. Paul's going to unpack for us a massive truth about what Jesus is doing. And it wasn't even in his sights when he started out the letter. But like, but like a lot of good things in this world, it comes to this moment of realization. It's like, oh, we've got to talk about that for a second. So you ready to look at the, at the time out? For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul stops what he's about to say and then makes a rhetorical mark. He says, assuming. Now, by this point in the letter, this should probably be received, read as sarcasm, right? Paul says, assuming you've heard, right? Is there anybody in the ancient world that understands better than the Ephesian church that Paul's job is to preach the gospel to Gentile believers? To Gentiles. Like, they're a Gentile church, right? They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in Israel. They're in Ephesus, in Turkey, right? The church makeup is mostly Gentile. There may be some Jewish people there from the diaspora, but it's mostly Gentile. And so the reason why uh, those people know the gospel is because Paul preached it to them. Now, there's been some turnover in the church. It's been a few years since they've been there, but probably there's a lot of people who were there when Paul literally preached the gospel there. This is a third of the way into a letter that starts out by Paul claiming or declaring his God-given apostolic authority in verse 1, chapter 1. So, do you think they know what Paul's about? Yeah, it's, it's kind of sarcastic. There's a little bit of a tease in this, right? He says, assuming that you've heard, right? Look at verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul says that the apostles know something that the patriarchs and the prophets didn't know. Is that a bold statement? That's a bold statement, right? The patriarchs, who are they? The, the fathers of the Jewish people and faith, right? Those guys, the Abrahams, the Isaacs, the Jacobs. You know those ones that get repeated over and over again throughout the Old Testament? You're the God of Abraham. You're the God of Isaac, God of Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish people. The prophets, the people who were given direct words from God to instruct and shape and move his people. Paul says, the apostles know something that those guys never knew. That's a bold claim. Anybody who's been here for the length of this series think that that's because the apostles are smarter than the prophets and the patriarchs? 
Anybody think it's because they're just more talented and see the world better and, and you know, because they've got hindsight, you know, it all makes sense to them when it didn't make sense to other people? So what's happened? God has revealed something, right? It's not because the apostles are smarter. It's not because the apostles are more talented. It's not because the apostles put all the pieces together. It's because the apostles have had something revealed to them, right? He says, verse 4, When you read this, you can perceive my insights into the mystery of God, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been, what's that word? Revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This is not Paul's doing. He's been given a gift, right? What the patriarchs were and the prophets were only given small glimpses of, Paul says that now God has unfolded the fullness of his plan. And so what's the mystery that he's talking about here? Well, verse 6, let's look at that. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so the truth that we spoke of last week, the, the, the fact that God is folding the Gentiles into a Jewish people, folding the Gentiles into his church, the people that would represent him, that truth is not a benign truth. It affects some things, right? And it definitely affects the cultures that are watching and the people that were already in God's people. You, th- you think somebody who's got their entire identity wrapped up in the, the idea that they're special and everyone else isn't is a little perturbed at the revelation that, no, actually God's bringing in everybody. I think that strikes them as something they're not fond of. This sent shockwaves through the ancient church. They, they literally had a council to determine whether or not the Gentile believers could be a part of the church, specifically after Jesus explicitly says, hey, go to all peoples and make disciples of all peoples, right? Even after Jesus gave them that explicit instruction, they're still like, a few years later, I don't know if this is what he wants. This sent shockwaves through the church here. It's a truth that will be completely unacceptable to those who, who want to fight against it. But as we've been saying, Jesus, through his broken flesh, unites us to each other as he unites us to himself. Paul doesn't say here that God changed his mind and finally decided to start letting the Gentiles in, though, does he? What Paul's spelling out for us, is, it, is he saying that God had a change of heart? He, he found the error of his ways? He was just kind of moving along with his plan. He's like, you know what, guys? I've been wrong about this. What's it say? This mystery is what? Verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. All right, so let me give you this Stephen Woodard translation of what Paul just said. How did I get this job? 
How did I land this one? Don't you know my history? I don't deserve this. Paul says, the plan of God, which by the way, that has existed from before the foundation of the world, is that he would bring to himself all peoples. That he, through the work of a Jewish Messiah, he would make himself a Jewish Messiah and unite all peoples to himself. Paul says, how in the world did I get this job? Literally, he says, of all the saints, I am the least, right? Israel served a glorious purpose, but the plan, the plan was always heading in that direction. If you haven't been here for the uh, full length of our series, we've already discussed the reality that the saints is a special word in uh, Paul's letters in, in the Bible at all. All right, so uh, if you have a Catholic background, a Catholic background is going to be coming in and saying, well, the saints are these venerated class of people and they've done these special things that have earned favor and all these kinds of things. Paul, when he uses the word saints, he's just talking about normal believers. He's talking about people who have been declared holy, declared righteous because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, right? Paul says, Though I'm the least of all the saints. He feels like he's the last guy who should get the opportunity to preach about the great things Jesus has done. And so he carries the responsibility, not because he's earned it, but because God is gracious. And God's the good giver. And he's handed a responsibility to him that he hasn't earned. And it floors him that he gets to be the guy that in verse 9 brings to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? Paul is dumbfounded that he gets to play this role. If we're being honest, I think we ought to be dumbfounded for the roles that we've been handed, right? I think an honest assessment of our lives when we, when we see what God has called us to do and what he's equipping us to do, doesn't the honest heart go, what did I do to deserve this? Man, I am the least of all the saints. Don't you know my history? Look at verse 10. What are those first two words? Time out. So I reminded you a couple of times now that the phrase, so that is an important phrase in the Bible. Um, and it's going to come up in important places throughout Ephesians' letter, uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians, excuse me. Surprise, here's an important place for, again, the uninitiated. So that is what's called a conditional conjunction. That's just a big word that I had to look up. All right? um, a conditional conjunction is a phrase that unites two clauses together, and it affects the values of those two clauses. Whatever the first clause is, it becomes a means to the greater end of the second clause. So if I were to say, I'm going to do blank so that I can blank, the first one is just a tool. No matter how great or important it is, the first one's a tool that helps me chase after the thing I really want in the second blank, right? I'm going to blank so that blank, right? It's, it's a means to a greater end. So follow me here. Paul just said that Jesus is uniting all people to himself, right? 
that he is unfolding the plan of what he is doing from beginning to end. And even though this plan rolls out in pieces, even though the, the patriarchs saw a piece and the prophets saw another piece and the apostles now get the plan in full, even though that plan is being rolled out, it's a means to a greater end. So what's the end? What does he say in verse 10? So that through the what? The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will see the manifold wisdom of God. So let's break this down in pieces. What does manifold mean? Many layered, right? Manif many folds, manifold, that's how that works, right? All right, so man many, something to be manifold means it has many layers to it. So the multi-layered wisdom of God, the multi-layered plan of God, that, that he says that the, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places will see this multi-layered plan of God. So who are the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places? That's a little harder, right? Well, he doesn't spell it out for us. But I think he's talking about angelic beings. He's not talking about rulers and authorities on earth. He says rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We can say this another way. That the entire heavenly host will marvel at God's plan being unfolded layer after layer after layer after layer after layer. That the entire heavenly hopes will be awestruck by a God who's doing this, and then this, and then this, and then this. His plan is for them to marvel at his magnificence of who he is and what he is doing. And who does Paul say that God is showing that wisdom through? The church. Paul says that God is using the church to show off the glory of his manifold wisdom. The Greek word for church there is just the word ekklesia. It literally means assembly. So while there's an element of church universal, big C, it's really just talking about the local body of believers here. The, the local gathering of saints, those who have been set apart by God, holified, sanctified, made righteous, declared righteous by God, right? The gathering of God's people who preach an unearnable gospel. The gathering of God's people where community is found in a depth unmatchable by the outside world. The gathering of God's people empowered for a mission that's bigger than what we could ever pull off on our own. And a gathering of God's people that appears in every way upside down from what the culture around the church would value. Right? What the culture around the church would declare to be good, beneficial. So while the world would look at the church and mock it folly, the Bible teaches that God looks at the church and goes, you see what I'm doing there? Isn't it amazing? Hey, psst, psst. check out what I've done for them. Aren't you impressed? Psst. See that group of ragtags? It's mine. The Bible teaches that when God looks at the church, even though the world would mock it as folly, when God looks at the church, he brags about it. Despite our ineptitude, 
Do you know how many problems we've had today? There's a reason I'm holding a microphone right now. I broke a coffee pot this morning. I had to clean up glass in the bathroom. It was terrible. Here's the thing. Despite our failures, despite our ineptitude, despite the, the fact that we constantly get in our own way, God goes, Psst. See what I'm doing with those guys? Isn't it amazing? And the Bible says that the whole heavenly host goes, Yes, it is. How great you are. How great you are. That, that fierce love that we sang about in the first song, I need that. I need a love that will come after me, despite me. Anybody different? That cornerstone that we sang about in the second song? That Jesus is the rock who's resolute even in the middle of the storm? Sometimes our storms are big. Sometimes our storms are just a thousand little ones, right? I need him to be that. But I don't have to imagine him being that. He is that. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. God's unthwartable plan strikes again, right? He's not making this up as he goes. He hasn't left any of this up to chance, has he? What does it say? This was according to the what purpose? eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus. We're not trusting a God who's on a lucky streak lately. We trust his character and we trust his finished work. All right, happened twice. We trust his character and we trust his finished work. And all the things that will be accomplished are realized in the already finished work of Jesus. The Bible calls it his death and a down payment of what's to come, doesn't it? All the things that will be realized are already being worked out. And so we, as the church, can approach him with boldness and with confidence, can't we? Trusting all the while that he will continue to do all that he's promised to do. Look at verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Okay, so remember Paul started down this rabbit trail by explaining that he was a prisoner on their behalf, right? Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. Paul is a prisoner right now, right? He says, hey, 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 don't lose heart for me. God's not only in control of this, he's using this. How is he using it? Well, we'll actually talk about that next week. But as for this morning, how do we respond to God's word today? If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response, my response, is to press into this good God today. I mean, isn't it? A God who's not making this up as he goes, and a God who's not overwhelmed by your ridiculousness. I got you beat anyways. If he's not overwhelmed by mine, he's certainly not overwhelmed by yours. We, we press into this God this morning. Follower of Jesus, we, we 
We dig in deep and, and love him for who he is and trust him for who he is. One of my favorite quotes in the world is, is uh, Charles Spurgeon. when he's talking, He was asked a question about, uh, about God's sovereignty in the midst of a storm, in the midst of terrible things going on in their life. And he, he said these words, God's sovereignty is the pillow you lay your head on at night. Man, I love that. He's, he's in control. Despite whatever's blowing around you, he's, he's got it. Not only does he got it, he's the place where you find rest, right? Follow Jesus, we press in this morning. This plan that he's got going on from before the foundation of the world includes his delight in what he's doing in you and through you. So we repent and we walk in obedience this morning, not just because it's, it's good and right, although that's true, but it's also falling into the pathway of fuller joy. It's to swim with the current of what he's doing instead of against it. In a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That'll be a chance for all of us to respond. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. Man, I'm glad you're here. hope you find this to be a safe place to work through the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. There are a lot of people, there are a lot of people who would look at a church with all its foibles, with all its hurts and heartaches, with all of its ineptitudes, and, and see that as a hurdle to get over when it comes to following Jesus. Man, I want to tell you, we've got sin that we're repenting of. We've got shortcomings that we're trying to overcome. But when we're doing what God has called us to do, we're also this beautiful mess. So this morning, I would invite you into the mess. I would invite you into the mess that begins with a relationship with Jesus himself. You repent of sin, you call him Lord, and, well, we all get to learn what beautiful mess you are too. This morning we'll pray, we'll sing, and we'll all respond to how God is calling us to respond. Let's do that. God, you're good to us. Thank you for Ephesians. Thank you for what you did in the Ephesian church. Thank you for being a God who works gloriously with the broken, with those who have nothing to offer with those who probably slow you down. But you are good, you are lovely, and you are doing a mighty thing. God, for those of us in here who need to respond to you in some way this morning, would you give us the courage to walk in that? The trust that even though we don't have all the answers figured out, that you are good, that you are in control, and you'll take care of it. God, we love you so much. Thank you for loving us when we had nothing to offer you in return. In your name we pray. Amen.